You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, your primary recording captain, Abraham. (laughs) And I'll be your co-pilot host, Shane. You're my first mate. First mate, I'll take that. I mean, this is the, the podcast boat that we're on. That's exactly right. Particularly because we are sailing in a river of tears. <laughs> That's how appropriate for for this episode. That was such a good segue. <laughs> that was great. That was so smooth. I'm sorry that we I'm sorry that we derailed it by saying how great it was. <laughs> That's fair. Whatever. We brought it back around. So this is a a episode topic that was requested by one of our listeners. We spoke to it when we read a listener mail, and she had asked essentially why is it difficult for women to hold back tears to prevent themselves from crying and what can you do to hold back your tears and i wrote back to her uh, a sort of quick response and i'm not going to read that again here but i thought you know she asked us to speak to this i thought it was a good idea and so we dug into this and we looked at some of what's been said in some of the peer-reviewed literature what's been said in some of those op-ed blogs if you will the sort of things as well as people who are sort of science communicators and what they've had to say about this and so we are bringing this to you today. So hopefully yeah. we'll make you laugh so hard that you cry. Just don't hold back. Just feel it. Surf the urge. Let it flow. That's it. That's that's my favorite song from Frozen, by the way. <laughs> so one of the questions that we are out to ask today and maybe answer is, do Shane Braham cry? I've actually spoken to this multiple times on this episode now. Or not on this episode. We just started. But <laughs> on this on our podcast across various episodes, I have spoken to this because I definitely have felt pressure to not cry. Yeah. And I am I am actually a pretty easy crier. It takes very little to set me off. And I find ways to suppress and hold it back. And that's something I feel like I've been doing my whole life. So I I really don't cry very much, but it's not for lack of situations in which I would. It has entirely to do with the fact that I don't feel comfortable doing doing it. I've been made fun of for it and I feel uncomfortable when I have done it around other people. So when I'm not around other people, then I'm just I always I'm constantly crying all the time. That's when the waterworks flow. Yeah, I could probably lose weight just from crying. I feel like that's probably a common experience for many men. That's been my experience too. Like I got made fun of for crying in a in a classroom one time and just have never demonstrated another emotion again from third grade on. That's right. Flat affect forever. That's right. Shane just looks like a statue. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 stoic. Also, he's so. he's got those rock hard abs. That's it. You know. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm like uh, Michelangelo's David, but in the 21st century. That's how he records, standing with one arm over the shoulder, just you know, totally naked. Totally, it's naked. really bizarre. It's really uncomfortable for everybody involved in the podcast. I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> So as we kind of dig into this, we want to be able to describe some of the processes by which crying occurs, right? So some of the biological processes, you know, as we start kind of analyzing this and start looking at this whole thing, we have to know how it works before we understand why it works. There's a system here in our bodies, and it's important to just break it down into the constituent pieces. Absolutely. And of course, we'll talk about some of the, the cultural uses and issues around crying and how that has showed up across different cultures. And why that my this might be a cultural issue. Yeah, we're also going to talk about why it is difficult to cry for some folks. We kind of gave a, a brief glimpse of of some of the social context in which you know crying might be a problem, but we're going to dig into that a little bit. 
and hopefully explain that. And we will also evaluate strategies for resisting crying and then probably tell you not to use them, but we'll go over them nonetheless. So that's what we're aiming to address today. But as with all of our topics, a little background is required. So let's start with the system. Let's talk a little bit about why crying occurs in the human body and maybe even in some animal bodies. And did you know that very stupidly, the name of the study of crying is called dacryology? <laughs> that's my favorite. That's probably my favorite fact from this so far. Right. That there is a study of crying and it is dacryology. This is actually specifically a study of the lacrimal system, which is where crying happens. And so crying is when the lacrimal gland produces a liquid of water, protein, mucus, and oil that excretes from the ducts in your eyes, and then usually it will cascade down your face. This, of course, can happen in response to irritation, dryness, pain, and, of course, during some emotional situations. And so this whole system in here is called the lacrimal system. The, the lacrimal ducts actually, from the diagrams I saw, sit just right above your eyes, kind of behind your eyebrows, right up there. And so we sort of got these aquifers of tears ready to go and ready to produce liquid in the event that our eyes need it. But yeah, that's that's the, the sort of biological straightforward part right there. One of the most important parts about that is that it's not just because we're emotional. It's because, you know, like, I mean, folks probably experience this when they yawn, when we cut onions, you know, and we'll talk about all those things as we go. But irritation in your eye, dryness. And I, and I like the idea that tears also have water and oil in them, because I would imagine that our eyeballs are not just covered in a sheen of straight up water or else they would dry out much quicker. Yeah, exactly. Drinking those tears. <laughs> That's it. Just for those folks who prefer tears to coffee in the morning, you just have to know what's in your tears when you drink it. Now, animals do cry as well, but so far as we know, they don't shed tears in response to emotional situations, which is common among humans. That's not to say that animals don't experience emotions. They do. For example, rabbits are mostly known for their blind rage and violent rage towards other organisms. And so um, they do have some crying in response to that. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Rabbits are not violent. There's only one violent rabbit that I know, and it's from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, I was thinking Banicula. Oh, yeah. There's Banicula, too. Oh, there's so many violent rabbits. I guess maybe it's just the dichotomy of a violent rabbit. Yeah. You know, the, the juxtaposition of that. But animals do express emotions in other ways. And so that it is important to note that just because they don't cry in emotional situations doesn't mean that they don't have emotional responses. I was just thinking about the tears in the coffee. I was wondering if that was keto friendly. <laughs> it does have protein. For those of our listeners who are keto experts, will you let us know if tears are keto friendly? Exactly. And whether you put them in your coffee. <laughs> if so, call a therapist. There, there are two main points that I want to make at right at the beginning of this as we get into understanding crying, why it's difficult to resist, that sort of thing. And specifically, the very first thing I really want to highlight here is that unless there is a specific survival or pathological reason not to cry, then I think personally, it is unreasonable and unhealthy to pressure people to feel shame about experiencing and showing their emotions. And you're not wrong or weak or hysterical if you cry or you express other emotions. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. <laughs> I, I like that. And it's your party too. So you can cry also. Everybody's party. Anyway, sometimes on that, I think it can be helpful to try and calibrate the magnitude of your reaction by evaluating the situation and maintaining control of yourself so that you or someone else doesn't get hurt. But this is pretty rare for most of the circumstances. And so that's really what I'm saying is like, if you're in a situation where 
for some reason crying would put your safety in jeopardy, then it's useful to be able to hold it back. But I, I think that generally speaking, as we're talking about people who are in these emotional situations, they want to cry. I think we just need to stop it with the shaming of people feeling like they can't express their emotions. I don't think it's getting us anywhere. And it ultimately, I think, has led to a lot of attitudes that are inappropriate, sexist, what have you. And so my personal stake on this is let's let's start with making a step toward ending the, the shaming of people expressing their emotions. I support that viewpoint 100%. Thanks. We can do better. So <laughs> Be best. <laughs> be best, please. The second point that we want to make, too, is that emotional crying is social. Full stop. It is, it is important to note that emotional crying is in response to usually some kind of social circumstance, some so- social situation, and is part of some of our social interactions. Now, interpreting the symbolic meaning of a situation such that it produces this biological reaction can only come from an understanding of language and a complex web of culturally defined relevance for a particular situation. So what we're saying here is, is that to understand emotional crying, you have to understand how language influences that, how context influences that. And a lot of times there are some kind of social context or social cues in place that do trigger this type of emotional response. And we'll dig into some specific examples that really highlight why that has to be the case as we move forward. But yeah, those are our two main points is that stop the shaming and this is largely a social cultural phenomenon. And as I said, as kind of a bonus, we'll describe strategies to prevent yourself from crying if you need to. But let's talk about crying and why we do it. And first, we have already defined crying, basically, but it can involve tears. But interestingly, it doesn't necessarily have to involve tears. It can be just sort of you get that sort of sobbing behavior that is the emotional expression of of maybe sadness or anger or what, what have you. But you don't necessarily and your eyes might well up a little bit. You don't necessarily have tears streaming down your face. And that can still be crying. One thing that's interesting about crying is that babies all cry a lot, regardless of gender or biological sex, right? So crying is really the only way to communicate their needs and and to be able to communicate to some caregiver at a very early age. There's no language. There's nothing else. There's no other coping mechanism. They can't do anything for themselves. So crying is the next best thing. And if they're in pain, they're hungry, they're uncomfortable, they need something, their only way of getting that help is to create some type of vocalization that's going to grab the attention of somebody who will be able to produce those things that they need. Right. And there are essentially two sort of states that we have for talking about crying. There's the basal state and the reflexive state. And so this basal state is, you can think of this as baseline, sort of as a cognate there and sounding similar, basal baseline. And this is just the constant moisture that's needed to keep your eyes from drying out, generally speaking. And you certainly might hear about people who suffer from conditions in which their eyes will stop producing the moisture that they need or will overproduce as I've actually known one person to have. And so they then need to go in and either apply some kind of medicine or even surgery to help control the release of that episode. So that's the basal state of crying. And then there's the reflexive state. And this is when our our eyes or that lacrimal system produces tears in response to pain and irritation. And then there actually is one more. So those are the two sort of biological ones. And then the third one is the emotional state that occurs in specific contexts that are emotionally relevant. Right. So for example, sometimes we cry because there might be something positive going on. Like I definitely cried when my kids were born. When something happens that symbolically represents an 
unordinary compassion, something that like we care deeply about, something that we feel happy about. I mean, those are, I, I'm sure that you have had this experience too. You have probably cried at something really cool. I absolutely have. I was looking at one, one thing that, I, that occurred to me as I was looking up these notes is looking at literary devices that authors will try and use to elicit emotions from their readers. And they said that there are two situations that they'll write about to try and get people to cry for positive reasons. There, there are more, but the, the two main ones that they talked about is when you show somebody who sacrifices something of themselves, either themselves or something else, to help somebody else, particularly when that someone else maybe doesn't even really deserve it, but they're showing like that deep of a level of compassion for someone else. Which is literally every character in the Dark Tower, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Just always bringing it back to Stephen King. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and then the other one was when there is a character who goes out of their way to try and help somebody else in a gesture that ultimately proves to be futile, particularly with little kids. They'll like they'll build something. They're like, oh, my mom is having, you know, she needs money. So I'm going to go out and like try and sell lemonade. And then they end up spilling lemonade everywhere and it breaks and they end up losing a bunch of money. And it's sort of like that. The situation that's not a great example, but the situation being where there's a futile gesture to try and help somebody that ends up not actually working can cause people to cry as well. And then if you are Ron Swanson, <laughs> the appropriate time to cry is at the Grand Canyon. That's it. The only time. Well, as far as for positive reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another reason why we might cry would be when we're frustrated or angry, like our actions fail to work or we express something else or someone else doing something that is harmful or something that we vehemently dislike i have experienced this as well myself another one is when we've lost something important that is a change in our circumstance that entails understanding a permanent loss of someone or something that we have a close relationship with so this is losing a loved one this is missing a critical opportunity that we are never going to have again the situations where we understand the permanence of the loss that that can be a, a situation where we're likely to cry yeah. Or when we are hurt. So uh, emotionally hurt or something happens that can be symbolically interpreted as violating a cultural expectation or relationship expectation. Maybe something like leaving your partner out of the loop on an important decision. That might be something that could be hurtful. So those are different social contexts in which you might engage in crying. And of course, there are other reasons, too. And so I think this is a good moment to really reflect on why we're we're making the argument that this has to be social, because, for example, if we talk about something where somebody says something offensive to you, they may be there is a superior who belittles your work, tells you you are maybe not cut out for this job and you're never going to make it or something like that. That could be a really emotional situation. But you also looking at this, that situation has no immediate relevance in terms of things like survival. There is no irritant in your eyes. The only reason that that could convey any importance is that there is a understanding of the context in which that occurs. And so, for example, if they had come up and said that to you in a language you don't speak, you're very unlikely to cry. So you have to have the language. So that's one critical step of this. Second is having the language, understanding the implications beyond just the words themselves. So the, the fact that they're saying you can't do this job, you're not cut out for it, we don't want you here. All of that means you maybe have a lack of financial security, you are questioning your overall competency in something. There's a, a wide ranging effects of things that are symbolically related to the importance of having lost that position. If they had come up and said that we're, we're letting you go because our company is closing down 
and like we're all we're all getting fired here we're all at a loss that might be that's not as emotionally personally damaging and you still might cry understanding that there is the lack of then financial security you once had but less likely than someone coming up and directly belittling you for something that you have done or not done or whatever the reason might be and i think there's also potentially the fact that if you feel like it's justified that you did make a mistake versus it's completely unjustified your reactions might be very different and so understanding like where your relative position is with respect to the how someone's approaching you all of that has to be cultural it has to be learned it has to be situated inside of a phenomenon that is only relevant for that particular circumstance for you in the moment right i mean it, it, when you break it down like this and you start thinking about it that there's no genetic benefit to crying when somebody tells you that you did a bad job right there's no like yeah. That, like that that's all contextual that requires so much of the person and the relations they make with the language that they have in the context in which they are operating like that's not the environment acting upon the biology of the organism to make them cry there's nothing that's protective about that in terms of the physical well-being of that organism and the survival of that organism in that moment we need to address of course this difference between relative rates of crying across men and women, male and female, what have you. And depending on where you look and who you survey, numerous sources have found that women do cry between two and five times more often than men do. So there are data to support the fact that it happens that doesn't tell you why or really much else about those circumstances. And I feel like given the amount of discussion around stereotypes and just the way that some of that's portrayed, that's probably not a shocking statistic. But I think that people will find that it is misleading in that it makes it seem like women just cry more because they do. And that's absolutely not the case. Right. Now, definitely some people have proposed that this has to do with the relative amount of testosterone versus the hormone estrogen. So the hormones that are most commonly found in people who are biologically male versus female, or they might be taking those hormones, whatever. And the evidence that is cited for this includes that boys and girls cry fairly evenly during their adolescent years until they reach puberty. And at that point, when testosterone increases and crying in boys is observed to decrease substantially, whereas as estrogen increases for girls, their crying tends to increase substantially. And so those are, those are two pieces of evidence that maybe support the idea that the hormones play an important role here. Right. And then you start seeing kind of a reverse effect as people age and, and they get into their later years, because what ends up happening is testosterone and estrogen production decrease. And so what ends up happening is that men and women begin to cry about evenly again in their aging years. So when you go to visit nursing homes, you might see an equal amount of crying. Additionally, there is this other hormone called prolactin, and this is known to stimulate the endocrine system, which is associated with a lot of things, but crying is among the things that's associated with. And prolactin is found much more commonly and is much more prevalent in women, particularly in their tears. So I guess when they've looked at the relative composition of tears in men and women, that there was more of the hormone prolactin, prolactin sorry, found in the tears of women than in men. And again, indicating that this might be relevant or relative to the amount of hormones that they have. So biologically... We see these processes going on across biological sex, right? It's a lot of correlation right now. There are a lot of correlations. So to further add to that argument, 
you know, there are some cultures where crying is considered less taboo, right? So, like, crying in men is not an issue of masculinity or toxic right. masculinity. And you see this where the difference in crying between men and women drops almost to zero. So, the issue of gender, I guess, expectations becomes culturally relevant in that moment, right? So, like, you know, there's probably some more punishing contingencies. There's probably some more social disapproval for men crying in some cultures than others, which is where you might see those discrepancies in crying across biological sex. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just one more example of when we actually change something important about this. So when we were looking at those hormone studies, we weren't actually changing the relative level of those hormones. I mean, we, we looked and saw that when the, the levels changed over time with age, that the rates in crying differed. But if we were to take one of those people and say, okay, let's increase or decrease testosterone or estrogen do we see changes in the your tendency toward crying but what we do see is when we actually manipulate the variable are there cultural situations or the cultural sort of unspoken rules maybe about whether or not it's appropriate to cry and if we take away that that cultural piece of it being taboo to cry then all of a sudden it evens out not completely but pretty close to completely and so that does suggest that you know like everything probably it's both and there is a huge cultural component here, you know, so we, although hormones, I'm sure are relevant here, we can't rule out those social factors that also influence this. Now, furthermore, some researchers have pointed out that there is a lot of sampling bias in these studies that look at the relative rates of crying between men and women and how there tend to be an increase of crying among women than there are in men, but they don't account for the opportunity. And so, for example, they pointed out that Without getting into the reasons for this, women tend to watch and listen to more things that are designed to elicit emotional reaction or reactions, which is to say that therefore they have more opportunities to cry. And so media and writers and people who are in the entertainment industry will specifically try and design pieces of entertainment that their audience is either male or female. And when it is oriented toward women, they try and write their material to elicit emotions, which means that they're more likely to have the opportunity to react to it in a way that looks like crying. So while the husband's out fixing something in the garage, the woman's inside watching a soap opera. And that was an example that I got from one of the websites is very sexist. But <laughs> the, the point being that in those situations where they're both in the same place at the same time, they're not in the same context because one of them is doing something that is specifically designed to elicit an emotional reaction. And the other one is doing something that is specifically designed to elicit a lot of swearing and their need for band-aids. Right. Now you have this additional context where, you know, just the opportunity isn't there. And then some surveys also found that men and women report essentially identical emotional experiences, but men hold it back and avoid expressing it if they report it at all. So not only are they holding it back and not only do they not express it, it's also the possibility, and you see this in some research, where men just do not participate in this type of research as often and they might underreport emotional responses. So you have this, at least in westernized societies where crying might be looked at as like a weak trait or a weak behavior that somebody might engage in men are not going to report the same levels because there's social context yeah that's such a good point there's a there's a fantastic researcher named bernard Guerin who has pointed out that when you look at these studies where you have to get volunteers for a sample because you're trying to sort of recruit information about people who are willing to share it. You have to think of the profile of the person who is willing to share that information and what had that person enroll in your study 
versus the person who elected not to enroll in your study? And is the difference between those two important in understanding the kind of answers that you'll get from them? And it's not unreasonable to assume that it is, in fact, an important variable. At the very least, we don't know, you know, and so we can't necessarily speak to the universality of something like that. But going back to your point about how men tend to hold back expressing their emotions, even though they report feeling the same thing, is also how they associate sort of the function of those emotions. And so men reported associating crying primarily with the emotion of just sort of sadness or maybe those extreme positive emotions. Women actually report crying for a much wider range of emotions that includes things like sadness and positive emotions and really complex emotions that sort of are in the middle of that, as well as things like anger and even fear can all be reasons that they might cry. Whereas for men, it's sort of a a more limited range, at least with respect to the people who were surveyed here and who reported it. Right. So even within that just brief little overview, you're seeing that like the complexity of crying becomes a little bit limited across those who identify as male or who are biologically male, I guess, is maybe the way to go about that. Yeah. There's also the uh, the topic of having a good cry. Just cry it out. Sometimes you just got to have a good cry, right? Having a good cry suggests it is healing and that we feel better. Like maybe there's some kind of cathartic release. Maybe there's something like you're bottling up an emotion and you just kind of let it all pour out. Like that's what that essentially implies. Yeah, it's sort of the release of tension where we feel that we need we need to get it out. And of course, researchers have looked into this. Several studies have found, of course, it's more complicated. It always is. Yeah, we never get straightforward answers. You know, this is science, so be prepared to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> There's always more to the story. And I think that's I think that's the moral to literally every episode that we've ever recorded on the podcast. There's always something more. Yeah. It's why we do what we do is it depends. <laughs> and it's complicated. But anyway, so as far as some of the results that have come from some of the research on this, one of them is that if we're crying for a positive reason, then yes, we tend to feel better after we have a good cry. If this was one of those situations where we were crying because there was something good that happened, then after we've had that cry, then we do feel positive, which again makes sense because we're in a positive context. So we're, we're likely to have that carry on throughout. And we also tend to feel better if we cry around a small number of people that we trust or who offer support, people that we feel comfortable around crying. That tends to work a little bit better than if we are in a context where maybe that support isn't present. Exactly. And to that point, if we're embarrassed about the fact that we're crying or we're just embarrassed and we are also crying or we're around a lot of people who are criticizing us for crying, then not only do we not feel better after having a quote unquote good cry, it's no longer a good cry. We don't feel better. We can actually even feel much worse. And so just crying does not necessarily mean you feel better. It depends on the situation that you're in. And so if you're in a situation where you are going to be ostracized, criticized, or treated poorly because of your crying, maybe told that you're weak or to get control of yourself, or you're treated like you're unwanted in that conversation, then you're going to feel worse, particularly because then you'll feel ashamed of the fact that you cried and put your, and you are now in a situation where you're being treated worse by other people. So again, it's just not black and white, not one equals two or whatever the comparison analogy would be. <laughs> It goes back to the idea of context, right? And so the actual research that's out there will show that the extent to which crying will be viewed positively or negatively is calibrated based on how appropriate that context is, right? So the context of the cry, 
Who are the observers? How intense the crying? Is the situation, I guess, commensurate with the the amount of crying that you're doing? Like, is there a match there? And so there's research out there that, you know, it's conducted via surveys. It will look at kind of applying a social context or a circumstantial context to the actual crying itself. Right. So although we have said that it's not necessarily as straightforward as having a good cry and that that will feel cathartic and you'll feel a lot better about life. Even though we have said that's the case and, and we've and we've made all the arguments for why it's not necessarily as straightforward as that. Also, holding back tears may not be a good answer. Some psychologists believe that crying releases stress and allows us to deal with stressful things that have happened and that letting that build up, letting that sort of stress build up indefinitely can cause a myriad of health implications down the road, such as increased blood pressure, lack of sleep, and also making you just generally more irritable, which is related to a lack of sleep, I would think. Right. Possibly to increase blood pressure as well. I'm not sure. That seems more in line. But yeah, so the point of this being, you know, I think it's unreasonable to assume that if you cry, that you're going to feel better necessarily because you cried. You might. But you also might not, particularly if it's an aversive situation that you're in and crying makes it worse. And holding back your tears is not necessarily going to be all that productive, but that is not one that's actually been borne out very rigorously by research. It is essentially what has been hypothesized by some psychologists who are in this field. Right. So right now, what we understand about crying is that it's biological. There are many reasons and we still kind of struggle with understanding it on some level about why people cry. But one of the things that we have to look at is we sometimes don't want to cry. So maybe some folks find some benefit in learning how not to cry, right? Right. And so before we actually go into the specific strategies, I wanted to talk about there are some people who can't cry. For whatever reason, those lacrimal glands or that lacrimal system does not produce tears in the way that it's supposed to. And this is pronounced, I looked this up to the best of my ability, it's Schrogren syndrome. Schrogren syndrome. Yes. Can, that, that looks about right. Yeah. S-J-R-O-G-R-E-N-S. Not English, but anyway, <laughs> this is a condition in which people have difficulty producing tears, and this can result in having dry eyes, also just called dry eye, and they need to have a lot of extra lubrication available and provided. They are unable to keep their eyes lubricated. They do not actually shed tears in, in emotional events, although they might feel those emotions. But what was interesting is that researchers have looked at the situations where people have this Sjogren syndrome. And when these people are in these situations, they actually, who have that diagnosis, they struggle to identify their own emotions, hmm. which is really interesting. So it makes one wonder, does the ability to express our emotions, the fact that we can engage in those emotions, does that influence our ability to identify with the thing that we're feeling and the emotions? So if we just maintain that flat affect, can we no longer clearly identify what we're feeling in that situation? That's a great question, because I mean, I think that we've probably worked with learners that actually struggle with the language around identifying stuff, right? So right. I meet with plenty of people and adults who struggle with identifying or labeling their own emotions in any given context. So that's an interesting thread to start pulling. And I'm, I'm going to say something that I might that might sound controversial, but emotions are a behavior. And when you are engaging in an emotion, that means that you are doing something, even if you're doing it only with only you can observe it, you know? And so if you are not doing that emotion, then it makes sense that it would be 
difficult for you to then match that with your understanding of how that emotion has been talked about and experienced and expressed by others. Right. Because it, it's, it's not similar enough, you know? And so I, I, that makes a lot of sense to me that that would be the case. But anyway, just wanted to talk about the fact that there are these people who can't cry and actually their lives seem like they're kind of difficult to have Sjogren syndrome. And so those people who are struggling, trying to stop themselves from crying, you might be in, this is sort of be careful what you wish for. You might be in the, in the better situation here. Right, right, right. I mean, it's a unique thing. And I had no idea that Sjogren's syndrome is, was a thing. <laughs> we should, at this point, I feel like we should have a cut of us trying to say Sjogren's syndrome over and over Shro- again. Sjogren's. I think that's it. It might be, Sh- it might even just be Sjogren's, but I think it's Sjogren's. S's and J's next to each other. It's a very strange combination. My mouth doesn't work like that. And then the R right there. Like, it's just too many consonants, not enough vowels. Okay, Shane, how do I stop myself from crying? All right. So according to healthline.com, there are a couple different things that you can do to prevent yourself from crying. First is tilt your head up or back to prevent tears from running down your face and give yourself something else to focus on, which is funny to think that that's like, that's the equivalent of not tipping a cup over. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just, just like that. (laughs) Just use gravity to your advantage. Yeah, like they can't pour out if you don't tip your ducks. So you can also cause physical pain, like you can pinch yourself between your thumb and forefinger, which doesn't sound comfortable, but I guess depending on what is making you cry. Yeah, more pain might not do the trick, but... (laughs) Right, but if you're emotional, maybe that's a distractor. You can tense your muscles, which can help you feel like you're in control. You can fake it until you make it, like put on a neutral face, but I think that that might be a little bit of a struggle if you are already starting to cry. Or if there's an irritant in your eye. That does fit in line with what we were describing earlier with people with Sjogren's syndrome is that if you sort of fake lacking emotion, then you can sort of force yourself to avoid actually feeling it as fully to the point where it would cry. But you're also right that that might be really difficult to do. So as we're going through this, a caveat, I would say is like this is in response to what seems like emotional crying and not like crying that has to do with like physiological like because somebody like takes a handful of pepper and blows it in your eyes. Like, you're not going to be able to fake it until you make it. You're going to create yes. <laughs> tears to wash out your eyeballs. Yes, physical stimulation or chemical stimulation to your lacrimal system cannot be prevented by tricking yourself out of it. <laughs> it's not, not how that works. <laughs> Could, you imagine? Could you imagine like somebody like, like you know, like how a magicians will like have a pile of dust in their hands and they'll just go and blow it out of their hands? Yeah. Like, so imagine somebody taking like pepper and blowing that into your eyes and you're like, nope, yeah, not me. You can't make me cry. You can't make me cry. Watch. That'd be like forcing yourself to become sober after you've been drinking alcohol. That's the guy at the bar going, I can do this. I can do this. Like, dude, you drink a fifth of whiskey. Yeah. You can't drive. You can talk yourself out of being drunk. I mean, I guess you can talk yourself out of being like super high on acid, but that's a different story. <laughs> but I think that's still even a whole thing. But you can physically step away. You can deliberately control your breathing through slow breaths. Now, if you've already started crying, you can blink more rapidly, which... I feel like might look more socially bizarre than just crying. Yeah, I agree. But that is one of the (laughs) suggestions that they offered. I mean, I'm not trying to be super critical or snarky. These are just, I'm just thinking of these in context. I'm like, that would be odd. Like if I started crying in a meeting and I just started blinking really rapidly, like that somebody would think I was glitching. Yeah. Blink three times if you're in danger. (laughs) Right. If you haven't started crying, you could try to hold your eyes and don't blink. You could change your thoughts to something else. So those are some recommendations that they provided from healthline.com. So essentially a lot of this comes down to the idea of either physically preventing yourself from crying or distracting yourself from crying. 
and that's focusing on something else or taking your attention elsewhere. And again, if we think about this in terms of the conditions under which we're already likely to cry, all you have to do, well, not all you have to do, it's not that simple, but the strategy might be then to change the condition that you're in to decrease the likelihood of crying from occurring. So if you're in that emotional situation, then try and think about a situation that's non-emotional, try and take a step back from it, try and focus on something else. Those are things that it's essentially this distraction thing going the pain, actually, that sort of you pinch yourself. The same sort of thing is, can I bring my attention and my focus to something other than this context where I'm currently feeling this increased emotion? All I can think of right now is Dale from King of the Hill reaching in his pocket and taking pocket lint and pocket sand and throwing it in somebody's eyes. And then somebody just trying to <laughs> trying to not cry when that happens. Got it. <laughs> anyway, I, I do want to end this section on strategies to stop yourself from crying with the caveat that, again, unless there is a very specific reason not to cry, just let your emotions out. Let's stop shaming each other and feeling like, you know, the more people who start treating this as if it is okay and acceptable, the more we can get the ball rolling on changing the way that we orient to these things in our society where we have to shame people for feeling natural human emotions. Yeah. So with that being said, we should probably look at like the actual scientific view of crying. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah. All right. So to start, crying can be a tool. You've probably seen folks that cry to manipulate someone by making them uncomfortable they, to try to get something they need. And it's likely works because the novelty and the vulnerability doesn't invite further aggression. So like if you're in a fight with somebody and somebody starts crying, you're probably not likely to continue going after that person in that fight, given that now all of a sudden they've demonstrated this particular behavior. It's sort of like no one's ever going to go to war with Tibet because they're the least aggressive people in the world, you know, that right. we don't go to war with the Quakers because they're not going to fight back. So it's when you present aggression, then you get aggression back. The violence equals violence sort of thing, right? And so when all of a sudden someone is expressing their vulnerability because they're crying, you no longer want to be aggressive toward them. And so that is a way you can use crying as a tool to sort of manipulate that situation, which if you're diffusing aggression, I think is probably a very good tool. And I would encourage you to use it personally. Yeah, absolutely. And as an example of this, if you think if you were looking at pop culture, the character Tom Haverford on the show Parks and Recreation, he describes how his strategy to get refunds for all the things he buys from Sky Mall, which how do we explain this? Because I believe Sky Mall is dead. This was like pre-Amazon, well, not exactly pre-Amazon, but it was this online tech place for ordering silly gadgets that nobody needs. Anyway, he said that whenever he he buys something and then after like a week or two of using it, he calls and he said, no one wants to listen or tolerate a grown man crying. And so he demonstrates, he's like, <laughs> it broke and I hurt my finger. And then they'll, they'll give him a refund on it, even though their policy is not to. What a great episode that is. Yes. Further into the behavioral or scientific view, sometimes women in a difficult position when they cry in certain situations, so that might be a challenge you see, and, and others can see it as a weakness or a lack of self-control, or that the crier is trying to be manipulative. So being a woman and crying has its own disadvantages from a cultural standpoint in that people might not believe it. Yeah, or they might see it as being a sign of your lack of competence in a particular position. And it's sort of be being between a rock and a hard place because you can imagine with a man cries partially because it's less likely to happen, but those viewed maybe make people uncomfortable. They might see it as weakness. Like you could, you could see that 
But for women, it's like there's kind of there's no good situation for them to be in. Like if they don't cry, then they're described as being tough, emotional ice queens or whatever. And if they do cry, then they might be seen as being manipulative or they might be seen as being weak. And it's like there's literally no way that they can win. Again, one of the reasons I think that we just need to abolish this idea that we need to shame people for crying. Right. But yeah, it's tough in those situations. And so that in and of itself could be like a cry inducing thing to realize like, man, I am. There's no way for me to win in this situation. Right. So Dr. Audrey Nelson suggests something called pre-cueing in situations where women, and this is in her words, are about to enter a conflict situation. So basically what they do is they can tell the person that they're about to have a discussion with, that they are concerned and upset with the conversation that they're about to have, and that they will take responsibility for their tears. So some people report that this gives them a sense of control in the situations and they end up not crying. But even if they did cry, they have prepared for the situation and don't feel or look like they're out of control. You said that great. And just to make sure that I want to reiterate that point one more time is that what you can do is essentially prepare the conversation for the fact that you might cry. Let the person that you're going into that conversation with know I'm upset. This is a difficult thing to have a conversation about. I might react in a way that you know, I am crying or I might react in a way that shows how upset I am. And so just having that control makes you feel, or some women have reported again, she said women, not me. Well, I said women, but I'm, I'm using her words. She reported <laughs> that, that some women have said that they go into situations where they were afraid they were going to cry and they probably would have cried, but because they stated up front, I might cry. This is an emotional situation. They felt like they had the control. They ended up not crying anyway. Or if they did cry, then they were not perceived and did not feel like they were being perceived as being weak and out of control because they're just saying like, this is an emotional situation. This is a hard thing to talk about. This is going to happen. And like, this is just how I feel to deal with it. So I liked that point so much. I felt like we, we, I wanted to make sure that our listeners heard it very clearly. You said it great. And I didn't mean to make it sound like I was no, correcting you. No, it's a great strategy. I think it's important. Like you're managing expectations is essentially what that is. Yes, that's a great way to say it. I've looked in some of the peer reviewed literature and I found there was a functional analysis of crying. Uh, they were looking at one participant and found that I believe this was a kid and his crying was maintained by sympathetic attention from his caregiver. And so whenever he cried, then he would get his caregiver come over and be like, oh, what's wrong? And, you know, it's okay. And comfort and sympathy and sort of the sort of special type of attention getting at it. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that everybody cries for this reason or that this is, this is going to be the case in all situations. But they were able to show repeatedly that when sympathetic attention was available for crying, crying increased. And when it was not available for crying, crying decreased. And there was a direct relation between those two things. And so... It's possible that for other people, you get sympathetic attention for crying, and you may not even know that that's why you're crying, but that might be one of the things that's going on. Right. One of the interesting things that we found, too, was that high amounts of pressure and modeling to suppress and avoid crying can be found in many, if not most, cultures. So the discussion around crying is not unique in terms of people shouldn't cry in certain circumstances or situations. We're not finding that as a, a uniquely American thing. This is something that is found across many, 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 many cultures. Cool. We have a few interesting little things to to wrap up with. I was interested in explaining why onions make us cry. And so there's just a, a few interesting little tidbits to end on. When an onion is being cut, it goes through this chemical process. There's like chemicals mixing and like cells are breaking apart and that sort of thing that result in an acid called, ooh, I don't know if I can say this, synrupanethyl S oxide. Synrophobenethyl S oxide. I did my best. 
And this acid irritates the lacrimal glands in your eyes, which causes them to water. And so that's essentially what it is, is like if you could actually put a screen, some kind of filter between your face and the onions, then you could prevent that acid from getting into your eyes and you wouldn't cry. But most of the time we're not doing that. So if you have right. your face shield that you're wearing, you know, not face mask necessarily, but a whole full face shield that might actually stop your eyes from watering as long as it's not like getting under the shield and into your eyes. Right. Goggles. Onion goggles. Onion goggles. Love it. Yeah. I, I'm sure there is a product out there. Somebody was like, nope, I am done crying. I will never cry in front of another onion again. And they put on onion goggles. Super random fact. Did you ever watch that? There's this show on Nickelodeon where these kids would like come on with certain talents or something. And then they'd had a panel of like Nickelodeon guests who would try and guess what their talent was. You're nodding your head. Yeah. I know exactly what that show is. And I loved it. Yeah. I remember watching it basically all the time, but one kid came on and he invented, had invented this thing to cut onions that prevented crying. And basically what it was is it was sort of like, have you seen those round apple slicers? That's like, it's a round metal thing with like the slices in it. You push it through the apple and it cuts it. It was basically that for an onion, but it also had like a filter on top of it. So it would prevent any juice from coming out of it. And so it would cut straight through the onion, but it would filter out the acid that would otherwise come up and get into your eyes. And so he called it like a no cry onion cutter or something like that. What a great show. Yeah. Those are the days that never made it to as seen on TV, but the idea has, has been out there. Yeah. That was a show that everybody would get slimed if they got like, they would get randomly slimed. Yeah. What a great show. All right. Another study found that in Israel, they found that tears decrease sexual desire in men. So that's kind of an interesting relation in terms of crying in tears and and possibly a pretty great defense mechanism. It was women's tears specifically. And I believe that they had them smell them. It was weird. It was a strange study, but yes, that was one. (laughs) I don't think people realize how strange science is until you start really looking at studies and you're like, they studied what? They did that? There was a study a few years ago that tried to show that dogs have a magnetic sense of north because of which direction they poop, which <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it seemed ridiculous to me, but moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Magnet poop. I bet you didn't think that was going to come up in this episode. <laughs> nope. You just never know. It's just like uh, we're like wild cards here. Exactly. So in the United States, President George W. Bush He was famously a president who cried very easily and in many situations. And I even read something where that suggested that he had sought medical treatment to try and reduce his crying Hmm. because of how often he cried. And so some people called him the baller in chief, but not B-A-L-L-E-R, but (laughs) B-A-W-L-E-R because of how often he cried. But, you know, that is one thing where I would think good for him. You know, honestly, it's interesting to see him not as president now because he's like getting ready to open uh, an art exhibit like he's a painter like he's like a prolific painter i didn't know that i want to say that he's opening an exhibit or he's got like a an exhibit somewhere or a show opening somewhere of all of his paintings and he that's what he does is that that's his free time it's like he is like a really prolific and actually a pretty talented painter Hmm. interesting funny stuff how that works back to java the journal of applied behavior analysis there's a study in that journal that indicated that distraction can increase tolerance for crying as well and specifically tolerance for hearing crying And so in that study, they were looking at, I think it was college kids, but it was people where they, if they were hearing the sound of infants crying, if they gave them something else to do while that was going on, then they were much more likely to tolerate it for longer than if they had nothing to do, which makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Common sense sometimes. Yeah. And then the last thing I had here was that why are eyes water when we yawn? 
And I've always wondered because I felt like my eyes water much worse than most people when I yawn. And it's just like I yawn and there's just tears streaming down my face. <laughs> but I discovered in looking into this that it's apparently because of how our faces are shaped, mostly with where the muscles are. So when we yawn, essentially what happens is the muscles press on that on those lacrimal glands and that that causes our eyes to water because you're just squeezing those aqueducts, hmm. those tear ducts, and that just forces forces water to come out. Now, interestingly, they suggest that if you just close your eyes when you when you yawn, that that can prevent a lot of the tears from actually coming out of your eyes. It'll still squeeze the glands, but they might not actually run down your face. So I'm going to try that. But yeah, I thought that was a fascinating talking about yawning makes me want to yawn. But I just had the same feeling. Like, yeah. No joke. I was like, I'm going to yawn. I can't do it right like now. 50 percent of people listening to this just yawned. <laughs> <laughs> we took a survey. You're welcome. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was really interesting that it's just because it's just because when we yawn, our faces contort in a way that presses on that gland. Yeah, that makes sense. So cool. All right. So, I mean, I think with all of that, is there anything else to say about crying? Well, we can just hit our major take homes here. I think the main point that I wanted to hit on this one is that stop shaming people for expressing their emotions. For the most part, there's not situations in which that's dangerous. But if there are reasons to not express those emotions, then there are resources for you to prevent it. But for the most part, like let's let's treat people as human beings who experience emotions and that if they express those emotions, that that's okay. My point on all this would be that it's important to understand that crying is part of a biological process, but also a cultural and contextual process. So to understand crying, you have to kind of understand both and how the system, the biological system operates within a specific social context. And I think that we've highlighted that pretty well here. Yeah. And I think to expand on that a little, I would say another major point that I would leave on here is just that we described, as we had described, women do cry more often than men, but there are a lot of reasons to believe that that's due to either sampling bias or specific cultural opportunities are increased for women. And that the way to account for this is best, I think, summarized by there's some amount of biology here. There's probably some role that the hormones play in this, as well as a very important feature from social context and the seemingly appropriate or inappropriate nature of the fact that they're crying. I like it. All right, perfect. Well, let's do some recommendations. Recommendations. So my recommendation this week is a really great place out in Orlando, Florida called Park Ave CDs. Now, it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a record store and it has been a record store for many, many, many moons. When I was a kid, we used to go out to Orlando and go to this record store and just that's where we would find all the rare vinyl that we wanted, all the rare CDs, all the all the in-store specials that they would have. You know, at the time of this recording, yesterday was record store day. So I'd gone out to Park Ave and gotten to see kind of the shenanigans of record store day during a pandemic, which is interesting. But it's just really great because it's got a really wide variety of music. It's really great for like punk and hardcore folks, but they do carry used vinyl. They carry a pretty big selection. They carry books. They carry shirts. They used to do live shows inside of the record store as well. So there's these really cool recordings of folks like Brian Fallon from the Gaslight Anthem. Childish Gambino had done a, an in-store show there. And it's just this really cool, this nice little hub for alternative music and just the uh, keeping and preserving the idea of a record store. So if you ever get a chance and you're in Orlando, it's called Park Ave CDs, and it's definitely worth a visit. That's awesome. I definitely want to check that out. That sounds great. Yeah. 
There's nothing better than a good record store, man. They're dying at such an alarming rate. They're going extinct. All right. My recommendation is a movie, and it is on the platform Hulu, if anybody has access to this, and it is called Palm Springs. And I'm going to say very little about this because I don't want to spoil one of the, when the major plot point reveal happens, which is fairly early on in the movie, it comes out of nowhere and it's so funny. And it also just, it brings the rest of it all around. I will say, I thought this movie was absolutely fantastic. It is hilarious. So it is a comedy. There's kind of a romance thrown in there, but I think more than anything, it is a, it is a comedy and it is very clever, very smart. The script is amazing. It stars Andy Samberg and Christy Miliotti, I think is how you say her name. And J.K. Simmons is in it for a little bit, as <laughs> well great. as oh, there's, a, there's a few other big names. I think Peter Gallagher is in it. So got, got some really interesting people. Oh, uh, Camilla Mendez from the show Riverdale okay. is in it as well. So I absolutely thought this movie was fantastic and it's so funny. And it's not at all your typical comedy that you might think. This is like very, very clever, well-written, very unique. And I would highly recommend you go check it out. It's on Hulu. It's only like hour 45 minutes-ish, somewhere in there, hour and a half, hour 45 minutes. And fantastic. Nice. I love Andy Samberg. And J.K. Simmons is great, too. So I, I'm I'm excited to check it out. All right. Well, uh, if you are Andy Samberg or you work at Parks and Rec Ave CDs, we definitely want to hear from you. If you uh, have any movies or CDs or record stores you'd like to recommend, we'd be happy to post those or uh, relay those on our social media or even on an episode. If you have any experience with crying, I hope that we did this one justice for our listener, Melissa, who wrote in and requested this. And I hope that you've got something out of this. If you have good strategies to prevent yourself from crying or you'd like to speak to that, we would love to hear those. And of course, you can reach us on all the social media platforms and email us at info at www.wwdpodcast.com. And you can also go to that website to find a bunch of other information and things about these episodes, and as well as links to some of our sources and that sort of thing. So I don't think there's anything else. You got anything else, Shane? Nope. That's all I got. All right. Thank you so much for recording with me today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.